0: All right, as you're having a seat, I thought it might be good. Let's celebrate Simon one more time, all right? Come on. Uh, Just kidding, buddy. We're not, not really. But that would be kind of fun, wouldn't it? You might say, I don't know if that's appropriate on a Sunday morning. But Thursday, when the Aggies get their first win, right? That's right. Then we'll be expecting it. Well, I'm going to tell you, we're going to study the book of Philippians uh, this semester. And the Apostle Paul compares his life to Gatorade. Not, not like literally, and I'm, I know I'm pressing the analogy just a little bit, but what he says is this, all that he has is a gift from Jesus Christ. And as a result, the only appropriate response is for him to pour out his life for the sake of the gospel. Jesus is supreme, Jesus is the highest value in his life, and so in the very middle of the book, he includes this poem, or possibly it's a hymn that explains the 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 incarnation and then the, the crucifixion and the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. It's incredible doctrine, but Paul doesn't actually include it for the sake of doctrine. He includes it as an example that Jesus has poured out his life for us. Consequently, the only appropriate response is that we would pour out our lives for Jesus Christ. And the biggest problem in our lives is this, that we hold things back. And we don't recognize that true joy and true freedom and true meaning and purpose in life is only found when we pour out all for Jesus. So before we get into the book of Philippians, I want us just to bow together and let's invite God's Spirit just to stir us up afresh. Would you pray with me? Father, we invite your Spirit to dig deeply into our hearts and, and to shine the light of truth into those corners of our lives that perhaps we're holding something back. And Father, I pray that even this morning we would have courage to pour it all out. An appropriate response of worship and sacrifice because Jesus has given all. Father, move us and change us, transform us. In the power of your Son who's given all. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Alright, let's get started with Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Philippians 1.1, 1, 1. let's read together. Paul writes, "Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." Now, when my son was uh, little, and I, I did ask permission to use this illustration, uh, he used to make badges. Right, and so I, uh, I actually borrowed one of the, the badges that he made from him. Uh, this is uh, one of his Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. badges. He is a level eight field officer, Ben Fisher. Now, the cool thing was he would make badges for all of us. And we got to pick our title. All right, so I, was, I would always pick something that was um, a, a little bit higher title. Right? <laughs> so you know, I'm, I'm commander, I'm director, I'm president, I'm king, I'm emperor. Right, I, I, I always wanted to pick something that kind of put me on, on the top. I never picked the title slave or servant. I always picked something that gave me power and authority. You'll notice in Philippians chapter 1, Paul starts with the phrase slaves. And if you're like me, I'm using New American Standard, which is one of my favorite translations, but it totally misses the mark on Philippians 1 verse 1. Paul's not saying bond servant. There's no ambiguity about this. Paul is saying we're slaves of Christ. We're those who don't belong to ourselves. Someone else purchased us and owns us. And Paul says we're slaves of Christ. And, you know, naturally we kind of go, I don't, I'm not sure how comfortable I feel with that term. Knowing what it means to be a slave. But in fact, if you look throughout the entire New Testament, the apostles frequently describe us as slaves of Christ. In fact, if you want to turn back to the book of Romans, keep your pla- mark your place here in Philippians, and turn to Romans chapter 6. Paul will frequently describe us as slaves of sin and slaves of death. We are born into this world, loyal to sin, and consequently moving toward death. That is, we are born separated from God, and we're continuing on a path of separation that will end in eternal separation because of this slavery that we have to sin and death. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16, he says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as a slave for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which results in death, or of obedience, which results in righteousness? Now, in Paul's theology in in Romans chapter 6, he says this, uh, the moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, you're actually removed from slavery to sin and death. And you're moved into slavery to Christ, which Paul says is actually freedom. Now, he says, live like slaves of Christ and enjoy that freedom. In other words, you're you're, you're released from this necessary bondage and loyalty to sin and death, but every single day you have to choose to live consistent with this new identity, which is you are a slave of Christ. And Paul embraces that title for himself because he realizes slavery to Christ is the only actual true freedom that anyone can ever experience. Right? We're, we're going to be slaves to someone. It's either sin and death or it's Jesus Christ and this is where we find life. In fact, one commentator, Douglas Moo, in his commentary on Romans wrote this. He said, freedom is deliverance from those enslaving powers that would prevent the human being from becoming what God intended Genuine freedom isn't that, that I can pursue all of my passions that can destroy me. No, true freedom is that wisdom and longing, understanding, and power to pursue the things that give life. And so he goes on, verse 17, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness." You were loyal to sin and consequently death. But now having believed in Jesus, you can have freedom and life. Therefore, live in that freedom. Pour out your life to Jesus Christ. And it may be for those of you who are coming back into town, you're starting a new semester, maybe you're starting a new job, it is a moment that you can have, in fact, a fresh start. And it may be that there is something in your life that you've hidden away and you've tucked away. And as Jesus said, whoever commits a sin is a slave to sin, and you need to say, Lord, it's time for me to pour that out to you. It's time, Father, for me to start fresh and let your Spirit shine into those corners of my life that I'm guarding and protecting and I'm not releasing to you because these things are tearing me apart. And maybe what the Spirit is speaking to you this morning is to pour that out and let that go. And to start fresh. And it doesn't happen in a moment. It doesn't happen simply in an instant. But it does begin with a choice when you say, I'm not going to be a slave to that any longer. Instead, I'm going to be a slave to Jesus Christ. And maybe part of that is the things that you're feeding your heart and your mind with. You need to set those aside. Or maybe it's the relationships that are pulling you a, a direction that's towards sin and death. And you say, no, I'm not a child of sin and death any longer. I'm a child of life in Jesus Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. And that's where freedom is. And you're going to make a choice a moment today. And you say, let me start fresh. There was, what's beautiful in the book of Philippians is that what we're encouraged to do throughout is simply to follow the example of Jesus Christ. I want you to turn back to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Philippians 2 and verse 5. Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He says, imitate Jesus Christ. Imitate the pattern of, of his life who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. All right, once again, my translation says bondservant, but it's not, it's slave. It says Jesus poured out his life to the will of the Father. He didn't cling to all of his, his rights and his blessings, his prerogatives that he had as the eternal Son of God, living in perfect fellowship with Father and Spirit, Instead, he said, no, I'm going to pour those things out. I will release those things. And instead, I'll take the form of humankind. I'll take the form of humankind at its bottom. I will take the form of a slave. In order that those who are enslaved can have life. Do you get that? Jesus enslaved himself to us. The one who created all of the universe who owns all and will eventually rule over all, took the lowest form of humanity and said, let me enslave myself to those creatures made in my image who are enslaved to sin and death so that they can be released and have life. Now, Paul says, Jesus having poured out his life for us, the only appropriate response is for us to pour out our lives for Jesus. Slaves of Christ. Second, he will call us citizens of heaven. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says our citizenship is, in fact, in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27 of chapter 1, he uses the same verb. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that word for conduct is literally discharge your obligation as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, that is, citizens of heaven. Now, this The concept of of citizenship is actually enormously significant in the book of Philippians. So, what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you a little bit of background on Philippians and the city of Philippi to kind of help you understand why citizenship is such an important concept. So, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Acts, chapter 16, and verse 6. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi. Um, in about A.D. 60 or 62, from a prison cell in Rome. Now uh, he, he wrote the letter um, ten years after he had established the church in Philippi. He includes Timothy, because Timothy was part of his missionary team on the second missionary journey that went into the city of Philippi and established this church. So to kind of help you uh, visualize what's going on here in Acts chapter 16... Paul left Jerusalem, he stopped in his home church of Antioch, then he stopped in his own city, his hometown of Tarsus, and then he moved through uh, Turkey or Asia Minor, and you see the the place names that are circled in red. He wanted to preach the gospel in Asia or Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, but the Spirit said no, and instead sent him to Philippi. So chapter 16, verse 6, it says, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, putting out to sea from Troas we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for many days. So, Paul says is this, we wanted to preach the gospel there in Asia Minor, which is a great goal, right? And the Spirit said, no, don't preach to those people. Wow. (laughs) Why not? Because God didn't love... The people of Asia Minor? No, because God was sending him on into a leading city, Philippi. uh, First church that would be planted in Europe because it was a strategic city. It was actually on what's called the Via Ignatia, which connected east to west. And so if the gospel could be established in Philippi, it would actually travel back into Asia Minor. So Philippi was the first church planted by Paul and his team strategically In Europe, It's a city that was named after uh, King Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. Later, uh, Antony would defeat Brutus and Cassius, conquer that city, and reestablish it as a a Roman colony. Now, the result of it being declared a Roman colony was that they had all kinds of privileges. It's not in Italy, but it was considered, in a sense, an Italian or a Roman city. So it had all of the privileges. It was ruled uh, under Roman law. Uh, all of the people who lived there were declared to be Roman citizens, that is that they got to, as a result, uh, they could buy property and sell property and trade property, they could enter into civil lawsuits, they could not be uh, beaten, or, nor could they be um, uh, put to death without a fair trial, they were not subject to any taxes in the Roman Empire, right, so there were incredible privileges that, be, that it pertained to being a citizen of Philippi, so much so that if you asked a person in this city, they would say, fundamental to my identity is that I'm a citizen of Rome. That right? I'm a citizen of Rome. And what Paul says in this book to the Philippians is, actually, it's more important that you're citizens of heaven. And there are more privileges attached to being a citizen of heaven, but also it rearranges all of your priorities. All right? So turn back to Philippians again. Turn back to the book of Philippians in chapter 2, chapter 1, verse 21, excuse me. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul himself was actually a Roman citizen. He was from a different city. He was from the city of Tarsus. And it was really valuable. There were times when Paul claimed his Roman citizenship, but there were other times when Paul didn't claim his Roman citizenship. In fact, when he went into the city of Philippi, they began to preach. He ran into a a small group of women who were worshiping by a river. And Lydia, remember, was one of them. She trusted Christ. She was an influential merchant in the city. And other people began to trust Christ. And one day, as Paul's walking through the city, he sees uh, there's this young woman who's following behind him. And she's possessed by a demon. She's crying out, you know. And you're, you're messengers of the living God. And Paul actually gets annoyed, I guess, in the power of the Spirit, he's annoyed. He turns around and says, out, demon. Just cast the demon out, just like that. The girl is healed. She's, she's uh, you know, back in her right mind. But her owners are now frustrated because they can't make any money off of her any longer by telling fortunes. And so they grab Paul. They throw him into prison. They beat him and leave him there, okay? bloody and wounded. Remember the story? And then there's a, an earthquake that night, or the gates fly open, all the bars fly open, and the jailer is about to kill himself because he realizes, boy, if the prisoners are gone, I'm dead anyway, so he's about to kill himself, and Paul says, don't do any any harm to yourself. We're all here. So the jailer comes in, he sees everyone still present, he bandages up Paul's wounds, and he says to them, what must I do to be saved? You're different. You're different. That night, he and his whole household trust in the Lord. Next morning, he comes in and says, you know what, the magistrate said... You're, you're good to go. Just You can leave. And Paul says, I don't think so. Because we're Romans. He could have claimed that citizenship the night before. And avoided the beating. But he didn't. He did claim it the next day. So that he would have the freedom to come back into that city anytime he wanted. See, he took advantage of his Roman citizenship when it would further the gospel. And when, when it wouldn't further the gospel... And the Spirit said, take the beating. He took the beating. His highest loyalty was to his citizenship in heaven. Now, when I was a student at Dallas Seminary, I had a a really close friend, and I've told some stories about him before. Uh, His name was Babu. So those of you who have been around a while have heard me tell uh, Babu Pinplucker stories. I remember one time, uh, after we'd known each other for a while, uh, Babu and I were were having a meal. And he was was an evangelist and church planter in, in India. We're having this meal, and he said, "Brian, when you graduate, I want you to, to come to India and uh, plant churches with me." I said, "Well, Babu, you know that's really impossible because, uh, as you know, India is not granting missionary visas, so I can't I can't move to India. I can't do that. I could come in for a week or two, but I couldn't move there." He said, "Oh, Mister no, no. Brian, there's a solution to that. All that you have to do is just give up your U.S. citizenship and become Indian." I was like, "Oh." <laughs> You know, kind of laughed like you did, a little nervously. Oh, no, no, I can't do that because I couldn't have dual citizenship. And he said, that's right, you'd have to give up your U.S. citizenship and become Indian for the sake of the gospel. And I had to to do a little business with the Lord in that moment. Like, Would I be willing to give up this thing that really is... You know, it grants me a lot of privileges, and I really kind of appreciate it. And I like traveling around the world with that U.S. passport. And I was born into this country. There's a lot of identity that I have in that. Would I be willing to give up that for the sake of the gospel? Would you? Maybe it's your U.S. citizenship, or maybe it's a Chinese citizenship, or Korean citizenship, or a Nigerian citizenship, or maybe it's your ethnicity. Would you give that up for the sake of the gospel? Or maybe would you give up Texan for the sake of the gospel? That's the only one that got a reaction, It's Texan. <laughs> That's awesome. My kids remind me that I'm not a Texan, but they are. I appreciate that passion. Would you give it up? So you have a lot of rights and privileges and entitlements and blessings that God has given to you in your life. And you know what? They may be absolutely wonderful things, but would you surrender them if in surrendering them you could further the gospel of Jesus Christ? So what Paul is saying is this. Pour out your life for the gospel. Pour out these loyalties, which may be good things, but they're not as important as your loyalty to Jesus Christ and to his kingdom. That is your highest loyalty. That is your transcendent loyalty. And if you're gripping it and clinging to it, it may be drawing your heart away from what really matters, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So pour it out. First, Paul says this. Pour out your earthly loyalties. Second, Pour out your self-reliance and your self-righteousness. Look at chapter 3 and verse 4. Paul says, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless." Now, what's interesting about this list is normally when Paul talks about himself, he usually talks about all of the things that are broken in him and the things that he's done wrong. But here, he gives a, in a sense, this is like his human highlight reel. So, look, if anyone else could be really confident in who they are in themselves, it's me. I come from a very religious family that circumcised me on the eighth day from the most religious and moral nation on the earth that has this moral code which transcends the moral code of any other nation. And among the people of that nation, I'm the top. I'm the best of the best. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In fact, I'm a Pharisee. I'm the strictest of the law keepers even insofar as I persecuted the church because I believed they, that they were undermining the law of God and blaspheming. Paul says, man, among my countrymen, he will say in Galatians, I was exceedingly cutting past all of my contemporaries. Right? Anyone who could rival me, I was far and above, more righteous than they were. In fact, he says, as to the law, And the righteousness which comes from the law, I was completely blameless. A little bit of pride there. But what Paul recognized was this. Even his love for God's word and the righteousness of the law was separating him from God because it was actually just producing pride in him. Not humility and dependence. So in verse 7 he will say, but whatever things were gained to me, all these things, which actually, in a sense, they're, they're, other than persecuting the church, these things are good things. Right? But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. In fact, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So I pour all of that out, all of my self-reliance, all of my self-righteousness, because Paul had this moment where he realized his pride kept him from God. And in fact, that is the sin, in a sense, ultimately, which keeps people from God. We all have sins, but there's that one insurmountable barrier which says, I don't need God. That's self-righteousness. Paul will describe his fellow countrymen like this. He says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So when Jesus got in in fights, who did he he fight with? Remember? The self-righteous. The Pharisees. Who did he draw near to? The, The outcasts, right? The people who are most sinful in their society. Right? So... Uh, tax collectors who were despised, and the harlots and the prostitutes, uh, even people who were so broken physically that no one would touch them, like uh, lepers and, and paralytics and, and people who were blind and people who were just so, so broken that so they were outcasts of society. Jesus said, "Hey, can we share a meal together?" But those who were self-righteous man, he flipped their tables. He upset their lives. Why? Because they were not only creating a barrier between themselves and God, saying, we don't actually need the righteousness of God, but they were keeping everyone else out because they said, look, the highest standard of righteousness is what we do, which no one else could achieve. And so they were shepherds who were leading the flock into destruction and that angered Jesus, that self-righteousness. And when Martin Luther was reading the book of Romans, he kept coming across this phrase The righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. And honestly, it just made him fearful. Because he realized that he was not righteous. And that he couldn't attain to the standard of righteousness that God expected. And so, as he thought about God and his relationship, all that he could imagine is that God looked at him every moment of every day, and he was just angry at him. So he lived under the shame and guilt and the anger of God. And then he had an awakening. And he made this statement. He said, I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Now, let me unpack the, the theological terms there. Justification was an enormously significant concept for Martin Luther. And what he realizes is this. Justification doesn't mean that God is making you righteous or that God is making you more righteous even than the people around you. Justification means God is declaring that you're righteous. And, And here's the distinction. Here's the distinction. You don't measure up. And you can't measure up. Because the standard that God demands is absolute perfection. It is, in fact, the glory of God Himself. You cannot measure up. You never can measure up. And so, if you continue to try to measure up, you will fall short. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so you will always live under this sense of condemnation because you're not right with God and you can't get right with God on your own. You can't, in fact, measure up. But Jesus does measure up. And so if you're in Christ, God sees you as righteous in him. But you've got to surrender all of your sense of self-righteousness and instead just claim the righteousness of Christ as a gift. So God looks at you, and instead of seeing your brokenness and sinfulness, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He can also at the same time see your sinfulness, but declare that you're in right standing because you have Jesus Christ. And how do you get that righteousness? You say, God, thank you. Thank you for taking away the debt of my sin and my unrighteousness by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the perfection of his life that I receive as a free gift. Now you're right with God, not because you measure up, but because Jesus measures up. That's justification by faith. That's the righteousness of God given to you as a gift. But you can't get to that point until you surrender a sense of self-righteousness. So, turn back to chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read this introduction uh, one more time. It says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. he, He calls them Saints, which literally means one who is, who is set apart. So what's he saying to them? He's saying, you know, I'm glad that you guys uh, are better than everyone else in Philippi. Are your saints. Is that what he's saying? That's not what he's saying. But that's what we often think, right? When we think about this concept of saint, we think St. Mary or St. Teresa or St. John. We think of somebody who lived this exemplary life. But that's not what Paul means by the term saint, uh, this last week, I was uh, finishing my workout. It's in a group workout thing, and this theological discussion cranked up. And I didn't initiate it, and I wasn't even a, a part of it. It was really wonderful because I could just kind of stand off on the side and listen to this theological discussion and debate. And at one point during this whole discussion, uh, one of my friends said, Well, hey, I'm no saint, right? And I was thinking, Yeah, probably not, you know? I, According to to the definition that is running around in your mind, which is you measure up to some wonderful standard by your behavior. But then one of my other friends stepped in and said, well, actually, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. It's like, that's good theology. And then she laid out the gospel. That's beautiful. That's perfect. In fact, you know, every time that, just about every time that Paul starts a letter, He talks to his audience as saints. He says, the saints in Rome, right? The saints in Thessalonica. He actually even says the, the saints in Corinth. Whoa! two of Paul's longest letters, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he is putting the beat down on the immorality of the saints. Because if you're in Christ, God looks at you as set apart because you have believed. That's the gospel, people. And everywhere that Paul went, when he preached the gospel, people would say, man, you are just making that way too easy. Add some performance to faith. Paul said, there is no performance. There's never performance that is good enough. None of us will ever measure up by our performance. In fact, we don't even have the power to transform our lives until God takes us and he puts us in Christ and gives us his spirit. So all that you can do in, in that moment is just reach out and say, thank you, I received the gift. And God says, now you belong to me. You're a saint. You're a holy one. You're set apart. Let me teach you how to live like one. Let me teach you how to live like a saint. Paul was saying in Philippians, let me remind you of the gospel, which includes no self-reliance. Pour out yourself and your self-righteousness and what you can achieve. And let God put you into Christ. Third, pour out your small desires. Chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And one of the things that you'll notice as we go through the, the book of Philippians is, um, Paul didn't write this primarily to address uh, doctrine. It was It's not like Romans, this rich book on the doctrine of the righteousness of God, or you know, 1 Thessalonians, that it's got a lot of eschatology in it. Uh, it it's really... Um, It's not primarily trying to solve heresy or or fix doctrine or teach doctrine. Um, And there aren't major problems, you might say, going on in the church, but, but Paul sees a problem emerging, which is this, selfishness. So what's happening in the church is that people are becoming more and more and more and more concerned just about themselves and their own needs. And the result is that the work of the gospel through them is beginning to be crushed. Selfishness is really critical. Well, you know, it's, it's actually, that's kind of the gravitational pull of the human heart. In time, what happens, unless God's Spirit is working, is that we become more and more and more and more focused on ourselves and what we want, what we need, what we desire. We begin to become even more and more focused just on our family or our tribe or our people. And what the Spirit of God is, is he comes and he breaks up that selfishness and he begins to point us outward. And so as you read the book of Philippians cover to cover, which is what I'd like you to do this week, just sit down and read it once, pick about 10 minutes maybe, and what you'll notice is this. This is, a, this is a missionary prayer letter. That's what it is. The Philippian church had supported Paul from day one. And as soon as they understood the gospel, they go, okay, we get it. We've just been enriched in Jesus Christ, now we need to be willing to give it away. So when Paul left, they gave him provisions and they gave him finances and they sent him on his way to take the gospel to other places. When they heard that he was in prison, they sent Epaphroditus with a financial gift and more provisions because they said, you know what, we realize that our calling in life is to pour out our lives, but what's happening now is they're beginning to become inwardly focused and not pouring out their lives for the gospel, which they had done historically. It really, they had become an example to all the churches the church in Philippi was the church that Paul held up to the Corinthian believers, Second Corinthians chapter 8. And he said, you realize the Philippian church is a poor church, but they begged me to participate in the gospel. They begged me to jump in financially because they realized that all that they had was a gift from Jesus. So they wanted to pour out their lives. But they had to get over this insidious self-centeredness, which was creeping back into the church. They were beginning to care about things that really didn't matter that much. When I was little, I used to um, I used to collect baseball cards, and I had hundreds, maybe thousands, a lot, a lot of baseball cards, and I spent hours with my baseball cards. Right? I'd take them out and I'd look at them and I'd read the statistics and I'd put them into protective sleeves and then I'd sit out with my friends and we'd spend hours looking at each other's cards and maybe trading cards and getting in this bargaining thing. I mean, we spent hours and hours and hours with my baseball cards. I loved my baseball card collection. And um, several years back, my kids were pretty small. I pulled out my baseball cards because I wanted my kids to enjoy my baseball card collection with me. And you know what? They were <laughs> completely bored. They had, they have no, They don't care at all about baseball cards. In fact, when I die, they will throw my baseball cards away. They won't care at all. I I hope that they at least realize there's some value. Put them in the garage sale. But probably they'll go, this is a hassle, and put them in the trash. They don't care about my baseball cards. And I have come to the point where I don't really care about my baseball cards that much either. In fact, I, I don't remember the last time I pulled my baseball cards out at 53 and sat on the floor looking at my baseball cards. I don't value my baseball cards that much either. I, it'd be great if they got a little bit of money from them, but I don't really care. But, it, oh man, once upon a time, they were so important to me. I mean, that collection was my, my pride and joy. I would show off my baseball card collection the quantity, and i pull out a few special cards, and I've got a Mickey Mantle. And I got, man, it was so important to me, and now I don't really care at all about my baseball cards. What happened? I grew up. And you know what? That's what we're all doing right now in, in Jesus Christ. We're growing up. And someday, very soon, for each and every one of us, we'll sit down with Jesus And we'll look back at all these things that once were so very important to us and we'll realize, you know, they don't really matter that much. And, you know, maybe that's uh, a possession that you have or the money that you have or the job that you have and the title you have and the prestige that you have. Or maybe it's winning arguments, as was the case in Church of Philippi, always being right and proving that you're, you know, uh, somebody who's important and to be listened to and all these things. And then someday you'll sit in front of Jesus Christ and say... Uh, Those things really weren't weren't that important. And you'll know in that moment that he was right. And so the best thing you could do right now is just let's put those things away and put Christ first. In fact, I I read an article recently that one of the best things you can do for your kids is throw away all your junk before they have to. So so before they have to sort through all of your junk, which stuff that doesn't matter at all to them, Throw it away, give it away, sell it, whatever. Or if you must keep it and use it right now, then put it way below Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, all that will matter is Jesus Christ and him being known with your friends and your family and among your community and in the nations. And that's why Paul says, pour out your small desires. That's really the point of the book of Philippians. Pour out your life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what I want us to do as we close is simply this. Let's, let's bow together and let's invite God's spirit to uh, once again dig deep and give us wisdom to give up our, our small desires, our, our loyalties, which are good but not nearly as important as Jesus Christ. The things in our lives that seem to just to, to rise up, and we need to pour them out for Jesus. Let's invite the Spirit to speak and then I'll close us in just a minute in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess it's a frightening thing but what we need most is for your your Spirit to to reveal the foolishness and the brokenness in our hearts and uh, the self-reliance and the pride that we have and, and teach us just to pour out all things for the gospel of Christ. I pray that we would learn as we study this book throughout the semester that, that deeper and deeper and deeper, God's Spirit would dig and, and teach us how to give all for the sake of Jesus and the gospel so that others can enjoy this treasure that we have and life in Christ. I pray, Father, that you'd give us courage and you'd give us truth and honesty, give us passion to go deep with you and lay aside the foolish things of the earth. And instead pour out all for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, this week, remember, we're um, one assignment, read the book of Philippians, just sit down in one setting, 10 minutes maybe, and then we'll start chapter one, verse three next week. All right, God bless you. We'll see you next week.